1: are listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon.
2: Now, Wade, I know that you might be a little bit on edge this week because you're going to be moving soon and everything in the world is crazy right now. So I have just the thing to soothe you. It's a series of video clips of me dying in creative ways over and over.
1: Wow. I mean, that is definitely soothing. I thought you were going to say vignettes of you mildly addicted to technology. (laughs) Believe me
2: when I tell you that death, is a lot prettier in this case. Listeners,
1: we have a great episode planned for you today. It's our documentary-themed episode. First up, we review Kirsten Johnson's new film, Dick Johnson is Dead.
2: And then we're going to be plumbing the dark depths of social media with a look at Jeff Orlowski's
1: new documentary for Netflix, The Social Dilemma. For more great content, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 266 of Seeing and Believing.
2: Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking. Just start walking to me. That's fantastic. Oh. Oh I suggested we make a movie about him dying. (laughs) He said yes.
1: Listeners, we are here with episode 266. We've got a couple of Netflix documentaries that we're going to be reviewing today. All of them are available to stream on the streaming platform. We're going to be talking about social media. I'm excited. I have no idea, Kevin, what you think of The Social Dilemma. But I'm I'm pumped about the conversation. It's, it's going to be great.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know me, so you definitely know that there's no love lost between me and the social media platforms <laughs> themselves. So it should be an interesting discussion for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, we are going to jump right into this week's episode with our review of Dick Johnson is Dead. Director Kirsten Johnson's father, Richard, he's dying. Well, I guess you could say he's dying in the sense that we're all dying. That is, slowly aging with each and every day. So, Kirsten does what any normal person would do. She begins staging his possible death. These creations range from the more ordinary, a car accident, to the elaborate. At one point in the film, an AC unit falls from the sky to land on Richard's head. The real magic happens in between, though, as Kirsten and Dick bond throughout the filmmaking process. This bond results in an emotional ride through grief, loss, and the question of what it means to say goodbye. Kevin, we both like Johnson's previous film, Camera Person. It ended up in my top 10 that year. And her follow-up has received rave reviews since its premiere at Sundance earlier this year. As we get into our discussion this episode, what do you think of Dick Johnson is Dead? And do you think... The film makes a case for Johnson as one of the more innovative documentarians working today.
2: Well, that is definitely a crowded field for sure. You've got you know Errol Morris, Joshua Oppenheimer. The, I, there are a lot of really great documentary filmmakers uh, working today, but I I do have to say that Dick Johnson is dead. Really. Like you said, does make the case for Kirsten Johnson's place at the top of the heap, or or maybe at the head of the class might be a, a better way to put it. I liked this film quite a bit, even better than I liked Camera Person, which I I probably didn't like it quite as much as as you did. You absolutely loved that film. I remember you raving about it on your uh, during the episode where we talked about our best films of that year, um, and I liked it okay, but it didn't blow me away. The way that it did for you with Dick Johnson is dead, though. I think blown away is a good way to describe my reaction
1: <laughs> to this film. I think it's very uh, is there a strong. Scene where Dick Johnson is blown away too? literally blown away. I don't know.
2: <laughs> no, I think the, the the closest maybe that comes is, is the scene where he gets uh, laid low by a two by four with nails in it. So <laughs> that's that's maybe as violent as it gets. But uh, I would definitely I would have watched. Another half hour of Kirsten Johnson's mordantly funny <laughs> enactments yeah. of his possible demise. Um, but yeah, all that to say, I just think that there's so much to recommend this film for its humor, for its warmth. It's probably the most touchingly personal film I've seen all year. It's just really something special. But Especially for viewers of faith, I think there's a lot to recommend it. Just in terms of Johnson's perspective on what on what or who has the final word when it comes to death. So I think it's it's really something special. Uh, given your introduction, I think it's probably safe to say that you agree with me.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I don't want to choose between this and Canberra person, but oh man, this is just it's it's amazing and. It, it's always a treat when a film with so much hype, a film that I've just been dying to see, uh, is is in fact really good. And I I do like that it's on Netflix because I, I hope there are going to be people who watch this movie who wouldn't normally seek it out. Maybe they're just kind of scrolling through and, and they find it. The... Uh, beginning of the movie. It, it features a scene that I alluded to earlier. Uh, Dick Johnson, he's walking along the street, and <laughs> almost without warning, a, a window AC unit falls on his on his head. And I knew uh, at that moment, Kevin, that this was my movie. This is a movie for me. This is a movie that examines death, what it means to say goodbye to a loved one. Uh, but it it's also really funny, and it understands that life can be simultaneously sad and, and actually kind of hilarious at the same time. And I just, I appreciate this film so much. And one question that I had going in is, how would, how would Johnson treat the topic of her father growing old? And I, I didn't necessarily have any reservations because her delicate, Use of footage in camera person tells us a lot about who she is as an individual, and she also featured uh, footage of her mom in camera person. Her mom suffered from Alzheimer's, and, and so I, I knew that she was going to approach this in, uh, in a way that I would probably feel comfortable with, and, and, and she does. Uh, I don't think she takes advantage of the situation, and she doesn't just make this movie for the sake of making this movie. Uh, she genuinely cares for her father, and, and what I love is, I love these behind the scene moments uh, where uh, we get them just hanging out and having fun. And Dick Johnson, who is an incredible individual, uh, from what I can tell from this documentary, he'll say something, and she'll say, "I didn't know that." Uh, he'll he'll express a fear or something that he's dealt with his entire life, and you would think she would know all of those, all those particulars by now. And she's like, wow, I'm so sorry, dad. And it just, it says something about her willingness to continue to learn about someone she's known her whole life, uh, the joy her father has in spending time with her. And then just how this documentary isn't just, isn't just a task to be filmed, but it's a way for them to hang out. And I just, I don't know, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And it, it, it meant something to me and it affected me uh, emotionally as well.
2: Yeah, the among the strongest elements of this film uh, is the central relationship itself. There's just obviously so much uh, love and so much history between uh, Johnson and her father that you can palpably feel throughout the film. This is a film that really showcases what a talented documentary filmmaker is capable of when it comes to sketching out an entire relationship just in with in the space of an exchange or a few sequences of them interacting. And it's even more remarkable in this case because it's not Johnson capturing that dynamic between two people outside of herself. So she has, abilities to stand outside their relationship and assess it a little bit more objectively and kind of think uh, have have more brain space I guess available to think about shots and how it all comes together in the editing room I mean obviously that was probably something that was on her mind in any case with, with this film but because it is so personal for her and because they do share this really strong bond that makes... That just amplifies how how touching it is when for example, uh, they are talking about uh, her her mother, his wife and and how she, how she passed from Alzheimer's and uh, Johnson just captures it like the the cameras basically it seems to be sitting beside her on the couch or something. It's not a an immaculately composed scene in terms of the camera work, but it doesn't matter because, the conversation is just so raw and and, uh, is really just, it's not exploitative. And this is a documentary, I think, that could really easily be accused of of exploiting tragedy uh, for the sake of art. Uh, Johnson, her her decision to present these conversations in a way that doesn't feel exploitative, that feels just as a natural, like it's just a natural byproduct of the love they feel for each other i think really shows uh, her talents as a filmmaker and also just her her discipline as an artist to be able to keep going and exercise such a uh, an authorial hand even while she she watches her her own father kind of begin his own decline and journey towards towards the end of his life.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, it's not a, hey, let's film this and then I'll see you later. Uh, she actually takes him to live with her, and uh, there's so much sacrifice uh, just in in that setting, in that scenario. Uh, you mentioned some of the camera angles and and not necessarily being um, meticulously composed, and what I appreciate about this documentary and, and Camera Person, well, let's talk about Camera Person, So camera person, for our listeners who haven't seen it, you should definitely go check it out. But uh, Johnson, she has filmed uh, countless documentaries around the world, and she basically takes the scraps, and she tells us not only about her life, but but just about the world and the importance of waiting and watching. And those qualities are inherent when you're making a film from scraps. And we really get to see the seams of the documentary process. And what she does here is is we get to see the scraps as well. We get to see the seams. We get to see the angles and the shots and the scenarios that would normally be cut. And so she'll be carrying a camera or the camera will just be sitting there watching and waiting. And and I I think she understands and, and what's just visualized powerfully across the film is that so much happens... Uh, in the meantime, uh, so much happens when we least expect it, and if we can just kind of pay attention for a little while and just and just watch and just wait, um, we might be surprised at at what we see. And so we get a number of those scenarios. Uh, we also get some just really uh, clever editing. Uh, there are a number of quote unquote death scenes. Uh, the, we don't know that they're actually going to be death scenes, <laughs> and, and it takes us by surprise. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of creative processing going on. Uh, I know that it, you hear this documentary about it, and you're like, oh, it's watching someone grow old. It can seem kind of rote, or you kind of know what to expect. You don't know what to expect with this. And um, that's why I, I used innovation uh, when I opened this segment because she is so innovative, and I think – I think this film really kind of turns 2020 films upside down. It's one of my favorites of the year so far.
2: Those reenactments really do give the film this live wire energy that, uh, like you say, keeps it from feeling uh, like uh, many other documentaries or, or, or at least many other... Uh, artistic objects that are about a a person coming to terms with the death of somebody who's close to them. I mean, that's a, it, not, not to uh, trivialize it or anything, but that is a story that is often told because it has such significance for the person telling it. And so it can be tempting to succumb to this sort of mindset, like you, you, you kind of know what the beats are going to be. You know, you, you expect the relationship to be established. You, you expect to see some sort of a decline and you expect to eventually at some point witness the, the death itself. And you kind of, in your mind, you kind of know how that might go or the way the, the, cho- the artistic choices that the artist might make in order to convey their feelings about those events. These reenactments though, not only do they, like you said, catch you by surprise, but they're also just <laughs> very funny. <laughs> and, um, it, it provides a, a great, uh, palate cleanser, uh, or, or contrast for the moments that are, uh, mm-hmm. more, uh, more genuinely sentimental and heartfelt because it, 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 just it gives it makes those moments stand out all the brighter because there's a sharp contrast of like you say this almost slapstick like scene of uh Dick Johnson getting his head smashed by a falling AC unit or um him lying at the bottom of the stairs after a after a staged fall and his daughter kind of coaching him on how she wants his limbs to be <laughs> splayed to make it look more more fatal and that really just makes it uh gives it this energy that is really special uh i speaking of the editing i also really liked how the the scene to scene editing is really constructed the the overall structure and the way the choices that johnson makes in cutting between different sequences is really great there's a device that often is returned to in this film where a uh, title card will pop up saying like Seattle or mm-hmm. New York City or wherever they happen to be and in the middle of that you know that she cuts from a one of these reenactments and then all of a sudden the title card appears heaven and mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> dick johnson like enjoying the the pleasures of paradise and there's this chocolate fountain and he's you know surrounded by falling golden confetti and it's just the smash cut to that it gave me just a genuine belly laugh because I wasn't expecting it, and it was so expertly put together.
1: Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about uh, the heaven sequence. Let's talk about uh, the way that Christianity is explored throughout the film. Uh, so Kirsten tells us that Dick Johnson, her father, is a Seventh-day Adventist, and she details his beliefs across the film – what he expects to happen when he dies. And she goes through soul sleep. Um, Seventh-day Adventists believe that uh, the soul will essentially kind of rest or lay dormant until Jesus returns and the resurrection and things are are made new. And Johnson, Kirsten Johnson, she doesn't necessarily tip her hand and say, this is what I believe. Uh, she is, essentially explains the beliefs of others, the beliefs of her Uh, Father, but she treats those beliefs with such, I think, reverence. Now, she has fun (laughs) with the heaven sequences, uh, but there's this, this hope that pervades the entire film. And it's, it's hard to describe, but as we're watching, uh, we get caught up in this, and especially us, we're, we are watching from our Christian perspective, but I don't ever, for a sense, say or think this is going to be the end of Dick Johnson. Uh, He will continue. He will survive. And just like he survives all these other, quote-unquote, fake deaths, uh, his eventual death, uh, it will have no hold on him. And, And I really appreciate her genuinely delving into what her father believes and trying to find a way to cinematically... Uh, not necessarily realistically, of course, uh, visualize that, um, but to maybe catch a glimpse of, of what it might be like. And I think for me, in some of those sequences, one of the moments that's, that's it's cheesy and it's silly and it's funny, but it's also kind of powerful is this actor. Uh, he is, he's playing Jesus, and he washes Dick Johnson's feet. And uh, Dick Johnson... He, ha- he doesn't have uh, toes and uh, there's a cut and uh, his feet now have toes. And just celebrating that and, and looking forward to things being made new. Uh, there, there's just – I don't know. There's a quality there, a Christian quality there that, that Christians I think will, will definitely appreciate when they watch this film
2: the eschatological vision that shines through in this film is what really takes it from being a a very good documentary to something approaching a masterpiece for me It's uh, like you said it's 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 whimsical it's fun but I would be surprised if I were to learn that Kirsten Johnson didn't retain at least some of uh, the faith that she grew up in just because the the vision of uh, a, you know, uh, Jesus in his glory returning again, washing the feet of uh, a faithful, one, one of the faithful like Dick Johnson, and healing this infirmity that he's had to live with and has been ashamed of for his entire life is, I mean, that is just quintessentially uh the the joy that we see in revelation the idea that um that you know all tears will be washed washed away um and there will be no more suffering or or pain or death that is just it's so it's so sensitively uh and, and really um powerfully put together that uh it's it, it just it really just affected me very, very strongly, and uh, the, there's there's an exuberance in these sequences that also keeps it from kind of the the airless realm of abstraction. And I think that's maybe another one of the things that Johnson brings out in this film is the the triumph of specificity and and uh, living in the moment versus living in abstractions you know dick johnson is a very he's a very gentle soul he's uh somebody who uh everybody who knows him knows him for being a a very warm man who is is living living life to the fullest and uh we see that in in an exchange where um johnson asks her father she asks she asks dick um if he could have one wish, like if he wanted uh, one thing to be true when he got to heaven, what would he want it to be? And, you know he she kind of seems to expect him to say something like world peace or something that's just, you know, this huge scale, like very big wish. And his answer is very simple. He's like, "I wish for your mother to not have died." And it's the it's a very, very simple. Sort of wish, and you you kind of at first expect like, you can have anything at all, and and uh, that like that simple thing is 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 what he wants, and he doesn't say it as if uh, as if it is that way. It's just a, a very simple, humble yes. I wish that this very sad thing hadn't happened, and that also I, in a weird way, speaks to me of the of the eschaton that 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 Jesus comes back not just to put the world to right but also to heal every individual uh, of their, their problems, big and small, and to achieve heaven on earth. And we really do see that in this film. And I think that that the, the way that Johnson is able to use cinema to convey that shows uh, both her formidability as an artist and also just what cinema is, is capable of, maybe uniquely, in, in just bringing these visions to life.
1: Yeah, and and there's this delicate balance with the film. It, it doesn't just shrug and say, "Oh, this is it's natural. It's a part of life. Just you know, it is what it is." There's there's really no hope. It it says there's there's death and there's pain. This is natural. Death is is natural and a part of life, but it's not the end. And going back to what you you just mentioned, uh, we get this vision that okay, we're we're not going to just get back what we once had, the body that we once had. Um, but we're going to get back the things that we never had. And uh, you see that with Dick Johnson. I also appreciate, too, how how Kirsten Johnson doesn't just look at the whole ordeal through her lens, but she tries to figure out what it might be like to go through uh, what Dick Johnson is going through. And there's some great scenes where he's leaving his his office for the last time. He's retiring. You mentioned those heaven sequences are just wonderful and the joy of of seeing his wife again. And uh, and then you have this scene, a powerful scene, and uh, their family, they're going out. They are trick-or-treating, and they actually leave Johnson in a room in front of a TV alone where he'll be safe, and they trick-or-treat, and then they come pick him up. And he was confused, very confused about where they had went. And so they, she restages, she stages this scene where he's in this kind of haunted house, this creepy house, and he's just sitting there, not really understanding where everything's at. And she mentions that th- this was her way to try to get into the mind of her father. And I really do appreciate that. She's not just saying, oh, look at me, it's so difficult, so hard that he's, his is being lost. Um, but this must be a very confusing experience for him too, and and it, one that we can only kind of imagine using art, and and she does that, and uh, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about this movie, Kevin. and it it really is wonderful.
2: I, I brought up Joshua Oppenheimer when we when you asked me at first, you know, who who I think are are some of the most innovative documentarians working today. And uh, the reason he springs, he sprang to mind for me is because scenes like that and like the, uh, the death reenactments that Johnson puts together over the course of this film really reminded me of uh, Oppenheimer's uh, The Act of Killing of 2012, I think was when that came out, um, which in its own way uses reenactments for a very different purpose, but shows kind of the same thing, which is that... Um, the act of dramatizing something of of putting together marshalling your cinematic resources to create something on screen can help you gain a perspective on it that you didn't have before and that haunted house sequence is a good example of how johnson essentially um Creates empathy for her father not by sort of telling us about how scary it might have been for him or just by interviewing him and expecting him to articulate for us but actually recreating it and dramatizing it before our eyes helps us enter into it and uh maybe even more importantly helps johnson herself enter into it and that's maybe where the similarity to the act of killing comes in where this entire project is essentially Johnson trying to come to terms with the fact that her father is going to die and uh, his, that his death is near. That I think the first line or one of the first lines in this film is now it's upon us the beginning of his disappearance and how she's really trying to come to terms with that. And all of these reenactments essentially are her using the power of cinema to let her have some sort of power over Uh, over his disappearance as she puts it to to allow herself to enter into that experience and experience it in a way that allows her to kind of not be drowned in the grief that that will accompany it when it actually arrives and i think that that also is maybe why it strikes me as one of the strongest movies of the year so far is because it really showcases what movies are capable
1: of yeah no it's 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 a great example of, of what we try to discuss and what we talk about and, and why we love movies and, and why we do the podcast is the power of cinema to help us to understand, to help us feel, to help us visualize. And I, I think that's what we get here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's amazing. We get camera person. We get this. And uh, Kirsten Johnson, She she is, as I mentioned, innovative. Listeners, that is our review of Dick Johnson is dead. I mentioned this at the top of the show, but it is currently streaming on Netflix. I want you to make sure to check it out. Definitely do that. And then let us know what you think. Tweet us at CBelievePod at C-Belief, POD, then you can also email us. If you've got something maybe a little bit longer, seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. It's funny I mentioned Netflix and social media, Kevin. We're going to be reviewing The Social Dilemma, another Netflix documentary here in a moment. Listeners, don't go anywhere. Listeners, that song is "Shy" by Fuzz Cation. We want to take an opportunity and say thank you to everyone who supports us via our Patreon campaign. You keep this show going, and it's been uh, it's been great to have seeing and believing in 2020. It's something that I look forward to every week, preparing for the show. And uh, being d- able to talk to you, Kevin, you can hop on over, listeners, to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to support us. Got a number of different donation levels. I know we mention this every week, but one of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. And, Kevin, we're thinking about our own mortality. We're thinking about life. We're thinking about death. Up there with those questions. Is this? <laughs> what could someone buy for five bucks?
2: We are interested in the in the big questions here on Siri believing. <laughs> uh, five dollars would get you a, a new plugin for for your phone or your tablet, your digital device that gives you a new set of emojis. They're the Buster Keaton emojis. So an emoji for every uh, every occasion. If every occasion involves you just having a completely stone faced. Uh, stare into the middle distance.
1: Yeah, yeah, well uh, you know, there was one time, Kevin that I was I was trying to capture a train and it was called the General and I really needed a Buster Keaton uh, emoticon, emoji, whatever they're called, to express myself. I didn't have it, but for five bucks I can get it.
2: Yeah, uh, you. that extremely specific scenario would have been <laughs> so easy for you To text with your friends about afterwards, if only you had had this plugin to begin with. So, yeah. Alas, for for that time, you didn't have it. But, you know, next time you're chasing down a train named the General, you will be armed and ready.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you use that emoji. If you know, you know. Uh, (laughs) Listeners, you can get that pack for five bucks or you can support us. On our Patreon campaign, like I mentioned earlier, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing, underscore believing underscore podcast.
2: Yeah, and uh, giving $5, if you're uh, not in the mood for Buster Keaton emojis or donating to our Patreon, it, $5 will also allow you to become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which in addition to giving you access to our members-only forum – Gives, uh, gives you access to periodic uh, free gifts that we give to our members as a way of saying thank you for supporting our site's mission. This month, Wade, we actually have a new offering. It's a book for our members. It's a book titled, Compassion and Conviction. And Michael Morgan had a write-up for it over on ChristPopCulture.com. He writes about it in part. As a people in the process of being transformed into the Beatitudes, the campaign trail can be a fraught place for the church, and as some factions have gone headlong for electoral power, the public image of the church has been pulled apart to the left and the right with the cross of Christ split and splintered like a dry log between them. Enter the AND campaign. In their primer on civic engagement, compassion, and conviction, their leadership lays out principles by which Christians can think through policy issues and then act through whatever means of civic involvement are available to them. One part social studies class, one part meditation on scripture and politically contentious disagreements, the book strikes a balance between the black and white mechanics of American politics and all the gray thinking needed to engage the machine. You can learn why it's pointless to picket your city council to bring recess back to public elementary schools while also thinking through a biblical meditation on being salt and light in the context of protest. Uh, There's a lot more to read on that. It sounds like a really great book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, Wade, but given that the election is less than a month away at this point, it sounds like it'd be really great reading material for, for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) I just want it to be over. But uh, I really do appreciate the book. (laughs) Appreciate the and campaign and, and uh, my business supports the and campaign because I I do really believe in, in what they do. And so I'm excited to get that book and check it out.
2: Yeah, me too. Listeners, again, if you want to get your hands on that book, Becoming a Member of Christ and Pop Culture for $5 a month is definitely the way to do it. Just go to the com. There's a button up there to subscribe and follow the directions from there, and you too can become a member.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
2: When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique.
0: What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded.
2: We're back with the second half of our show And now that we've had our USDA daily allowance of uplifting, life-affirming art about the people (laughs) we love, it's time to balance it out with a documentary about the evils of social media. Wade, do you think we should maybe have uh, Jonathan, our producer, splice in some sound effects of a spooky organ and thunderclaps (laughs) at this point?
1: Well, I'm thinking the psycho scream would be great, as well (laughs) as... uh, the, the score, it, it'd be perfect. You know, we, we just finished our Noir Summer of Darkness, but I feel like the darkness is continuing this week. Um,
2: yeah. Yes. It, I mean, <laughs> it, is, it is, you know, it's October. Halloween is coming up, so maybe it's more appropriate than we initially thought mm. when we were planning out our schedule. So yeah. I guess that worked out pretty well. No, no, <laughs> it, it did. Cue the
1: ominous music.
2: Well, the documentary... Uh, accompanying that ominous music this week is The Social Dilemma, Jeff Orlowski's new documentary for Netflix about the disquieting algorithms and perverse incentives that form the basis for the technology that many, if not most of us, use every day. Featuring interviews with people who once worked at the highest levels of tech giants like Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Instagram, Orlowski paints a disturbing picture of the present day's media environment and the ways in which these tech giants affect our behavior, sometimes without us even realizing it. Along the way, Orlowski sprinkles in dramatized sequences about a family coping with the effects of this technology on their everyday lives. Wade, to get us started, I'm curious to know how this film affected you. It does seem to be wanting to change the viewer's social media habits in some way, or at least make them think about those habits in new ways. Did this film cause you to view social media technology in any new ways? Did it succeed in making you want to change your social media habits? Or did you think a few too many babies were being thrown out with a bath?
1: <laughs> Not enough babies were thrown out. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, the last year I've really been uh, trying to assess my social media habits and in, in moving uh, farther away from social media, spending less time, posting less. Here's the thing. If you want to spend less time on social media, just don't post very much and you never have to respond. Uh, You never have to worry about as many notifications. So I've been trying to do that because I really feel like uh, both Twitter and Facebook, I feel like they're pretty toxic. And I feel like they're touted as a way to connect to each other. But you have to hack the system to make connections and it does happen and there are good things in social media uh, aspects but um, yeah I don't know I've, I've been pretty pessimistic lately so whenever I watched this documentary I was like yes this is what I've been talking about this is this is exactly what I've been saying um, at the same time I, I do realize that um, Social media can be good. Uh, I use social media for for business. I run ads on Facebook, so there's a lot of talk about Facebook ads. My, my company does anyway. And um, so I, I, I do see the beauty. It's a fascinating documentary. I don't know if it's all too effective. I, I have some uh, some issues with it, at least the way it presents and deals with the topic. But I don't know. I I think we're at the point where maybe it's okay to be a little bit extreme right now, Uh and that's what this film does
2: yeah i'm I'm with you on this film having good intentions but maybe not being as effective as it really wants to be i mean watching uh some stretches of this film especially um the the dramatized sequences where we're kind of watching this this quote unquote normal american family sort of cope with the bad effects of social media and smartphones on their lives it kind of put me in mind i haven't seen this film all the way through i've seen clips from it but the that that old movie reefer madness the the old i think it's from the the 50s or the 60s it's kind of this very alarmist take on what happens when you get a puff of that mary jane that marijuana <laughs> okay. and just everybody just goes insane and it's it's very overheated and these days it's kind of regarded as a camp masterpiece for the ways in which it traffics in alarmism and doesn't really seem to actually have been made by anyone who has any experience with the drug that it's talking about and i i kind of got that impression from this film and i don't say that because i'm any sort of booster of social media i i could be described as as being a luddite uh, i i definitely Use social media more than I ought. In fact, the, the the fact that I use it as much as I do and yet hate it so much is a really good way of illustrating this movie's thesis, which is that uh, it's uh, an addictive technology. It's it's bad for us, and yet we find ourselves weirdly compelled to to use it, or at least to have a presence on it. So I agree with the move with this documentary's premises and the overall thrust of its arguments i just don't think that it's made in a way that uh, that really is the most effective way to to make those points i think it's it's a little bit rote in the interview segments and i have to say the dramatized sequences are they're they're just flat out bad i don't (laughs) know if there's any other way to put it they're just they're silly there's kind of this uh, Vincent Carthizer, who I, I like a lot and wish he found more work after his work on Mad Men, kind of plays this this dramatized version of the algorithms inside your smartphone, sort of like this inside out vision of little people inside of your smartphone, sort of like saying, "Let's send him some videos of flat Earth theory," and they you know, flip it on onto the screen that they're all looking at, and they're all like in this kind of Star Trek kind of room. It's it's all. Really silly, which because the point the filmmakers are trying to make is so deadly serious, I think is is a big problem and does their their laudable goals a disservice.
1: Yeah, I wrote down uh, inside out about those characters. i <laughs> I think the I think the dramatized sections are pretty bad, and they it ends really odd. It's it's kind of strange. There's. There's a vignette involving a young girl, and she, it's dialogueless. And while people are talking, the the talking heads, uh, she posts a picture of herself, and she gets a ton of comments. And in the midst of those, there's one person that makes fun of her ears, makes kind of a sassy remark to her, and it it really affects her. And I thought that vignette was effective because it's trying to to visualize. What's being talked about? Uh, the other sections—they're uh, just—they're not good at all. I I do wonder too, in terms of persuasiveness, if this if if this documentary is trying to persuade us, I'm not sure that it's effective because it's so doom and gloom. That when you get off and you know you give it some time, you you get on your phone and you realize, oh okay, this could kind of be a happy place. Uh, that fear goes away. It, it doesn't really do anything. Uh, I think we need to see some of the joys of social media. I think we need to see individuals who are I don't know if you'd say in the middle but are not as extreme as some of these individuals and then I also feel like people might be a little standoff fish with some of the people interviewed because they've they've gone, they've created these algorithms, they've helped build Facebook or Instagram, they've made some of them... I assume have made a good deal of cash, and then now they're now they're against it. Um, so I, I think that could affect people in in other ways. I, I do think that some of the explanations of how this how how this technology is addictive um, is pretty insightful. I think we get we get some clips here of people in Facebook, talking about the addictive technology and what they're trying to do. And I think that's effective. So this film uh, hopefully will, I think, be a wake-up call. Uh, I just, I wish that the craftsmanship was there uh, to kind of help us out. And then two, okay, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I was trying to figure out how to pinpoint the, the ideology at the the crux of this film And this film is essentially like, hey, um, it almost treats humans like animals. Like, we're kind of like these, we're we're these animals, we have these impulses, and the only way to stop this technology is really to, to either shut it down, perhaps, or to heavily regulate it, or to tax it. Like, that's really the only way to combat it. It doesn't say too much about, or if anything, about our desires and... How those are fueled or bent in certain ways and how these desires have been around for a really long time. Technology just brings them out differently. And how might those desires need to be changed in order to take social media seriously? So, so it seems to treat humans like animals, maybe even machines or robots, even though it's saying, oh, social media turns people into robots. So I, I'm still trying to parse through that um, At the least, it seems a bit incomplete. I uh,
2: definitely picked up on what you're talking about in that there's this kind of moral neutrality that uh, is evident in the way that this film goes about making its points, which is is that you're right that it doesn't. it, It kind of treats this as 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 a purely social. Problem. I, I something like poverty. Like it's it's a social problem that if we can come up with the right policies to combat it, then it will it will be solved somehow. And that the problem isn't necessarily that social media exists. The problem is that it's not being used the right way, or that uh, the these corporations are implementing it in in bad ways. And I mean, there's a kernel of truth in that, but I, I think one thing that kind of made me sit up and take notice is an interview uh, with, with this one. He's probably the maybe the central interview subject. He worked at uh, Tech Giants in the past, and he's since made a career of trying to uh make a wake up call for for uh how these technologies uh are are having bad effects and how they're designed to sort of uh have to have act on people in unfortunate ways and he says something that uh th- there's a difference between a tool and the technologies represented by social media he says that a, a tool is something that's that's you people have power over and that you just use it for a task. So if you have a hammer, then you know, it's it's just a hammer, you use it to hammer in a nail and then you're done with it and it's just sort of this neutral object whereas social media is different because it is designed to act upon you in a certain way. So it's not just an object that you use, it's an object that acts upon you. And I don't know if that's entirely true, uh, and it's, it's an interesting kind of debate over media ecology and whether there is such a thing as a purely neutral technology or tool. Um, I don't necessarily think there is, but I think that might speak to kind of the incompleteness you're talking about where nobody here seems to really think that maybe it, the the problem is that there's just really no way to make these technologies, uh, good or or useful or to find a use for them that doesn't outweigh their their bad effects simply because of the way human beings are i think that's an uh, a, uh at least a concept that needs to be considered and because this film doesn't really consider that it kind of ends up feeling a little bit toothless like it ends with this um this call to this call to action. Like we all just need to find a better way to be on social media. And I don't think that is really going to be what saves us. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I would, but it seems like that's not something that would have even occurred to the interview subjects or the makers of this documentary. And that seems to be an oversight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think too, in addition to that, the history is, is limited here. Uh, we get dissension. Uh, we get uh, one person actually even alluding to a, a civil war in our country as a result of technology. And at some point, it seemed as if, okay, the the world's, it's, it's kind of a bad place right now. <laughs> it's not in a good place. And we're blaming technology. But if we look back in history, we realize that We've been in situations like this before. That's not to, to lessen the severity here. But we have been in situations like this before, and technology was in a different place. So we can't just scapegoat social media uh, and, and, and say, well, th- this this is the issue. Though I do believe um, that a number of things that they said are true, that human beings, we, we are designed to be liked uh, by handful of people are we designed or made or as one character or one individual says um, are we have we evolved to be liked by 10,000 people and, and and that's I mean that is yeah that's that's a great question I, I think there are some glaring omissions from this documentary uh, I, I we don't hear anything really of influencer culture I think that's huge and, and just I think one day in 50 years, people are going to talk about influential culture, uh, influencers on social media, and, and it's going to be an amazing book. Um, there's nothing uh, that talks about pornography. And I know that we this is mostly regulated to uh, social media, but it also involves cell phones. It also talks about Google, email. So th- there are some areas where I'm like, okay, this is not touched on at all. Now, perhaps... That would make this film too long, and needs to be a miniseries. Um, but pretty glaring omissions, if we're talking about technology and what it's doing to our world today.
2: Yeah, it, those are those are all elements that I I noticed seem to be missing. And also, it just doesn't seem to really dig too much into the incentives that create this kind of environment. Like, why are these tech giants so obsessed with? Uh, creating devices that monopolize attention the way they do? Why uh, do they care more about engagement rather than the well-being of their users? And the answer is, well, because caring about the well-being of your users doesn't make you a lot of money. (laughs) And there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of, of attention paid to the ways that, uh, capitalism really creates this kind of mindset where people are just, uh, seen in terms of the value they can generate. And that's something that is really part and parcel of a whole media, a whole social media package, uh, which is that you, you are the product. That's the thing that they acknowledge in this film, but they, they don't really acknowledge why, why that is something that's in the atmosphere to, to begin with. why, do people have to be the product in order for social media to function? And uh, it's just again, it just seems to be a glaring omission. And it's not really helped by the fact that it's all just overcast with this with this very this patina of seriousness. I really made note of the the soundtrack by Mark A. Crawford, which really seems to be trying to lean into the Trent Reznor score from The Social Network. Just this very doomy, dark. Moody score, um, but it doesn't really seem to be even as perceptive about the human heart and the the bad effects that such stri- such capitalistic striving can have on the human spirit as that fi- you know as that feature film did, which it, it seems like a little bit backwards. It seems that a film reckoning so strongly with social media would be Make more of an effort, I guess, to dig as deeply into those issues as David Fincher did with his film.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> the music is, uh, no pun intended, one note um, throughout the picture. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will say this: what this film reminded me of was the pervasiveness of this technology. Now, I know, Kevin, in the past, you've talked about how you, you've had a quote-unquote dumb phone. I do have a smartphone. I have, I have an iPhone. And notifications, I, I think they they are a problem. And we see it, it, it's just, it's always there. Jonathan Haidt is interviewed, and he has some great statistics. It actually, uh, he, he deals with those in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, about anxiety and depression going up among uh, Gen Zers. And in his book, he also adds something else, which I, I found was insightful. He said that... Younger, uh, when you were younger, uh, when he was younger, when a lot of us were younger, before social media, uh, we could go to school or we go to a place of worship, wherever it was, and we'd encounter problems. Um, maybe they were bullies. Maybe uh, it was just the, the stress of trying to always look your best, be the funniest, not say something dumb. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work. You were always on guard. But then you go home and you weren't. Uh, for for people who, who grew up in a safe home you were in you were in a safe space. Now he says that that doesn't happen because of social media it's always there. You never let your guard down and that can produce a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. And I, I think this film does highlight that that it is it's everywhere and it's very difficult to escape it. And uh, what I'm finding too with 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 my two boys is, even when you put up rules, uh, what do you do when you're at a place and every other child their age has a device, uh, and 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 now now you've got to fight <laughs> a battle on on two fronts. Uh, it 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 really is it it is a challenge, and it's something that I definitely want to work towards. and And so I I don't I don't think that uh, this this documentary is without merit. Uh, it deals with a very important topic, and it says some important things. Uh, just doesn't go as far uh, as as I'd like it to go. (laughs) It it doesn't go as far as I'd like it to
2: go in its analysis of the actual problem. I think I could do with a little... I I would like it to go less far with the corny uh, dramatizations (laughs) just... You know, I I like Kara Kara Hayward. Uh it's nice to see her getting work after Moonrise Kingdom and Match Chester by the Sea, oh, but yeah, yeah. man, <laughs> I need I need her to be in in better projects than this. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, that is our review of The Social Dilemma, the Netflix documentary. If you've seen this film and want to offer your take on it, we'd love to hear from you. You can always uh, use social media to let us know your thoughts. Help us redeem the platform uh, with your insights into this film. You can always, of course, email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. But now we've reached the part of the show, Wade, where we're going to offer a recommendation from the world of television or film. We've had a few weeks off from offering recommendations while we were doing our film noir marathon, but it's time to jump back in. So, what do you have for us this week?
1: Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat again this week. This does not relate to television and or film, but we are talking about technology, and we're talking about how to set up limits. We're we're talking about how to understand the role of technology in our lives. And earlier this year, I read Andy Crouch's book, The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. And I thought it was uh, very beneficial. I thought it was great, actually. It's more than just uh, filters, as the synopsis says. It's more than just screen time. But how do you understand a more, or how do you take a more holistic approach to technology within the life of your family? So that's a book that I very much appreciate. And I've been trying to apply a little bit better i have not done the the greatest job at but um it it is a good book nevertheless and i would encourage parents to to check it out it's it's a quick read but i i think it's i think it's something that everybody needs to consider and and you need to work through those those issues with your family
2: oh, i haven't uh read that uh but maybe i'll pick it up i definitely know that andy crouch has a a really Uh, good reputation among uh, many of my friends, uh, including you. So thanks for... The recommendation there. My recommendation for this week is going to be uh, tech-focused as well, although it is uh, in comedy form rather than in book form. Uh, I recently started catching up with the HBO sitcom Silicon Valley, <laughs> which is uh, a show from... who? The showrunner is Mike Judge. He co-created it along with John Altshuler and Dave Krinsky, who he also worked with on King of the Hill, Um, So you kind of maybe already have a slight idea of the kind of sensibility that goes into this. It's definitely got a lot of office space in its DNA as well. It stars uh, Thomas Middleditch as uh, Richard Hendricks. He's a programmer who comes up with this incredible new algorithm for a data compression app, and it just kind of chronicles his attempts to turn it into a successful uh, application and build a tech empire around it while being dragged down by kind of the the shallowness and craziness of Silicon Valley business culture. I, you know, it's I, I like Mike Judge a lot, and I so maybe this is just a case of his comedic sensibility really jibing with my own. But I also specifically really like how this show captures a very specific kind of corporate culture where corporations, especially big tech, really love to position themselves as very socially conscious, as caring a lot about progressive values and the environment and all of these things. But really, what they care about most is bolstering their brand. And that is skewered so perfectly in this this TV series that I can't help but laugh. Uh, it's a good watch. I'm about uh, halfway through season two, and it's still pretty good. So definitely check it out if you have HBO, uh, the TV series Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, so I have HBO Max for, I think, an, close to a year because of something that I purchased on a cell phone or something. <laughs> and so I've been wanting to check that out. I get... Oh, man. Zach Woods, who's in that show, he also played Gabe in The Office. When, when Zach Woods came around, my life changed forever. Everybody always calls me <laughs> Gabe. And um, a lot of the people close to me are like, no, no, you don't, you don't look like him that much. Um, but <laughs> it definitely changed my life. I, I need to check it out. This has been on my list for a while. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you like it because it's something that I've just been like, oh, I, I need to watch it. I just I haven't started it yet.
2: Yeah, Zach Woods is is one of those those actors that he, he's definitely a little bit typecast. Like he he just has a certain kind of character that he plays all the time. But he just he plays it to such perfection in everything I've seen him in in the in the Office, in the uh, TV series uh, Avenue Fifty One. This show, it's just he's got this kind of soft spoken. Very, you know, white bread kind of affect, but he's just absolutely hilarious while doing it. So he's definitely a
1: highlight for sure. There you go. Well, listeners, that is our show today. As we mentioned earlier, you can catch both of the films that we reviewed, The Social Dilemma and Dick Johnson is Dead on Netflix. So make sure to do that. And if you have not done so, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast we'll be coming at you all this fall with new releases before we wrap up 2020 and it's been a weird year but we've got some good films that have come out and we've got some that are coming out so stay tuned for that thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by com. our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade bearden my co-host is kevin mcclinathan and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture
2: Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculturecom slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.